Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and this is a special bonus cut podcast. Uh, Chris, Chris Dorides is uh, joining me. This is a, it's not a bonus because you're on, Chris. Sorry to say. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, Gee, I mean, well, how did it, really? You Way took to that deplete the uh, ego there. Right? No, no, no. It, it's always special when you're on, Chris. But you're always on. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, is true. You, that is- you know, this, this, uh, it, uh, uh, we had an anniversary. The podcast. We missed it. We totally well, completely. It. <laughs> no one, no one said a thing to me. We had, a, I think it was a couple of podcasts ago, or maybe it was last week. I can't remember. We had our hundredth podcast. Can you believe that? It's like two years. We're, we've been doing this for almost two years. It's like hard to imagine. So yeah. it is special talking to you, but I talk to you all the time. So no, this is a special bonus podcast because we have uh, Campbell Harvey. Uh, hey, Cam. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, Cam is the a professor of finance at Duke University, and um, the way I, I I've been reading your work for many years, uh, and I think of you as the father of using the uh, yield curve, the Treasury yield curve, as a predictor of recession, and uh, so all roads lead back to you. And I, I you told me that indeed they do because your PhD thesis was exactly on this topic the yield curve as a predictor of future recession what when did you do when were you in grad school when did you uh did get your phd so uh, my phd is dated 1986 but uh the idea goes back uh even before i got to the university of chicago oh oh you got your phd at chicago oh, that, oh, i didn't know that uh and so where was the where did the idea come from how did that What's the genesis of this as a, oh, and let me, let me, let me stop for a second and to provide a little context. Uh, I just take it for granted that people know what we're talking about, but you know, uh, everyone, uh, the, the strong consensus view uh, of economists uh, and in many others is that the economy is headed towards recession. And broadly, there's two reasons for that. One is uh, to circumstance, we have high inflation and the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates aggressively. And if you go back historically and look, when you're in a high inflation, high rate world, you end up in recession a lot more often than not. Uh, in fact, you have to look pretty hard to find the time when you don't end in recession. And the second reason is that the leading indicators that economists tend to use to uh, assess the probability that the economy is going to go into a near-term recession, or all, or not all of them, but many of them are signaling red, flashing red. And the most prominent is the yield curve, uh, the shape between, or the difference between long-term interest rates, ten, say 10-year treasury yields, and short-term interest rates. And we're going to come back and discuss exactly how you measure the yield curve, Cam. But that, when that, cur- that curve is typically positively sloped, higher, lo- uh, higher long-term rates than short rates, but sometimes it becomes inverted. Short rates rise above long rates. And when that happens, uh, historically, we end up in recession, you know, some period after that, 12, 18 months after that. So with, with that as a preface, and it, it's very prescient. I mean, very prescient. If you go back and look at, you know, the recession since World War II, there's been 12 of them. And you look at the yield curve, it, it inverts before uh, uh, the re- recessions hit, and and and, and, all, and uh, invariably it depends on how you measure the old curve. It you, you don't get false positives, you don't get the curve inverting, and and recession not happening. So it's it's a really prescient indicator. So economists look at that and they say, oh my gosh, 
you know, if history is any guide whatsoever, we're going in. Okay. So with that as a long, first of all, let me ask you this, Cam, did I say anything there that you would take umbrage with or would like to elaborate on, but then, then let's go back to, let's go back to ground zero. Where did this idea come from? Where did this regularity that you observed, you know, how did it pop in your mind and became ultimately your thesis? So the the story is looking back on it uh, pretty bizarre, bizarre. Uh, and 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 let me uh, let me kind of go through uh, what happened. So I was a first year master's student, and I had a couple of uh, internship uh, offers, and uh, one was and uh, all in Toronto. That's my hometown. And one was at a major media company, and the other was at the largest copper miner in the world at the time. And I chose to go to work um, for the corporate development um, division of this large copper miner. And the first day on the job, uh, they gave me a task. And the task was to build a model to forecast real GDP growth. And at that in real time, I didn't think it was a big deal. So, so what do I know? No I'm big 20, deal. <laughs> Twenty three years. I can old. do this. <laughs> and 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 they give me a job. Um, and and looking back on it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like copper and GDP are are so highly correlated that the decision to uh, open a new mine or, or close a mine is critically dependent upon your view of the economy. Yet you've got this student intern in charge of developing a GDP forecasting model. But again, in, in real time, I thought it was no big deal. So, so I start and, and I realize that I'm at a significant disadvantage at the time there were uh, these econometric uh, services you could subscribe to for oh, tens yeah. of thousands of dollars. They've got these simultaneous equation models. That, that would be um, us, Cam. By the way, that would be us. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and 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 there's just no way I could build like a hundred equation model, assemble all the data, and and deliver uh, a credible forecast. It was just impossible to think about it for one person uh, versus uh, these companies that have hundreds of economists uh, working for them. So I had I had to take a different um, approach. And the first thing I thought about was looking at something simple. And what I wanted to look at were asset prices. So given my finance training those asset prices should reflect expectations of what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. And I thought about stocks. I thought about bonds. I did a little research on, on stocks uh, without looking at the data. And there was a prominent research uh, stream at the time uh, spearheaded by a Chicago professor, uh, Eugene Fama, oh, that sure. looked at the relation between the stock market and, and real activity. and Kind of look at looked at those papers and and realized that this was not going to be the measure that I really wanted to look at, and and there were multiple reasons for this, and and one reason, kind of a joke at the time, was that the stock market had forecast uh, nine of the last five uh, recessions, 
And the reason I think that was a Samuelson that, quote, wasn't it? Wasn't that a Samuelson quip? I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Paul. Well, who, who, yeah, you're, you're correct. Yeah. yeah it was right. actually a quote in 1950s. In the <laughs> so, 1950s. So nothing right. really uh, has changed. Yeah, right. So, so there's many reasons why it could be like an unreliable uh, indicator. Like the essential intuition is that valuation of a stock is based upon the discounted present value of the cash flows. And those cash flows are driven by earnings and earnings will be impacted by real activity. But there's a lot of other stuff going on that could make it really noisy, including you need to discount those cash flows um, by uh, like a rate that reflects both what's happening in the economy and, and just shifts in risk. Um, the cash flow is not so obvious because it changes through time and the duration of stocks is, is very long. So you put all this stuff together and it could be very unreliable as it was at the time. So I decided instead of looking at the stock market to look at the bond market and the bond market had a number of advantages. So number one, there was a fixed maturity. Uh, number two, the cash flows were were known, so mm. the coupon is 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 stated. And then number three, uh, if we're looking at U.S. Treasury bonds, the risk is is minimal in, in terms of uh, default risk and and things like that. So you put that all together, along with the basic economic intuition that uh, a nominal interest rate is made up of uh, the real interest rate, expected inflation, and a risk premium. Mm. Assume that risk premium is fairly uh, low, and you've got this expected real rate, you've got expected inflation. The expected real rate, according to almost every uh, standard economic theory, is linked to expected real economic growth. So I've got something, and and the reason that I looked at uh, a yield curve rather than just rates is very simple, that I didn't want to deal with the expected inflation component. Hmm. So to take a difference, I could isolate that um, the oh, expected growth. So that right. that's kind of where I went. So I put this together, and it looked very promising, uh, and I was about to present it to um, the higher-ups in the company, um, I show up and I'm told that the entire corporate development group has been laid off, including me. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Can I, what, this, what was the company's name? Balkan Bridge Copper. Oh, okay. Largest you in the world. You can look at the them time. up. Uh, yeah. they, okay. they, interestingly, failed, of course. Um, and if they're putting a 23-year-old kid in charge of like a critical input. Uh, right. right. You knew they were going down. <laughs> that was the indicator right there. That was the indicator. That's yes, a good this is unbelievable. Yeah. And this is really yeah. harsh, right? That you're in the middle of your internship as a student yeah. and, and you're laid off. Like that usually doesn't happen at a firm no. of this prominence. And, and in addition, this is in Canada. The Canadian right. supposed to be like much nicer. Yeah. And and to, to send the kid to the street, um, wow. So I was not too pleased, obviously, uh, but things kind of work out. So I had an extra four weeks 
And I started to do additional research on the idea because I was kind of excited about the idea. And then I went uh, back for my second year and showed a few professors what I'd come up with. And they said, oh, wow. Um, this is this is a really good idea. Yeah, you need you need to apply for a PhD. Oh wow! And and I had no idea. Like I was the the first person in my family with a, a bachelor's degree, and maybe they got the idea that I could get um, a quick uh, master's degree, but PhD, I had no idea. Uh, so Chicago, no less. With the, well, um, that's with the, the thing. I, I didn't even know where to Nobel apply. Nobel laureates, right? Yeah. And, and so, uh, so they helped me. I put um, my application together uh, to various schools, uh, and in hindsight, it was a strong application because what I did was I included my paper mm. that I'd written up. Mm. So um, my master's program they actually gave me they combined a few courses and allowed me to just work on the paper. So I included the paper, I applied to these programs, and they say, well, this person's doing research already, and and uh, let's take a, a risk on him. So um, that's how I ended up that, in Chicago. That, that's a great, that's yeah. such a cool story. Yeah. yeah. But it, look, this was, was not easy, even though I got to Chicago with my idea, Chicago's got a very yeah. high standard. Uh, yeah. Indeed, three people on my committee uh, went on to win Nobel prizes. So, uh, so, so Fama, was, Fama was on, yeah. he was, yeah. Uh, Fama Nobel was my chair, Merton Miller. Yeah. And oh, Merton Miller. oh, okay. Wow. That yeah. is just, that's incredible. That's is there, you, you may be the only economist in the world with a PhD with the three advisors as Nobel laureates. Is that, that, that could be a record, like, you know, yeah, that, well, that, really, again, I, I, at the time it was statistic. interesting because uh, the students kind of knew that they would win, but it took many years for them to win. Uh, and uh, yeah, if, oh sure, yeah, right. But but yeah. nevertheless, it, it was you kind of uh, yeah. They were um, very rigorous, uh, and I my paper, the quality data really, if you're looking at treasuries, is is after the fed treasury accord so you really can't go back mm. that far in history because the rates were uh, so manipulated which is uh, in the 50s i can't looking, remember when was that accord it was 19... 1953 it's 53 right i could be wrong right in around the there War. i think that's right yeah so yeah i've got like an economic theory so that's essential so you just can't have an empirical finding and 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 think you're going to get a dissertation from Chicago. So there is a theory, and then there is empirical result, which appeared quite striking. But nevertheless, uh, it think of it as being four out of four um, for recessions. And my committee saying, well, this could just be lucky. Yeah. And they were impressed that I got the double dip recession. And nobody else got that. So none of the big so, forecasts. So 1980, services. there was a recession. Then there was one in 82. And the curve signaled that. It inverted before yeah, the 80. It, this, yeah, yeah right. inverted. Uh, it went positive. Then yeah. it inverted. Then yeah. it went positive. And, yeah. and if you look at the yield curve and look at a real GDP growth, it's a mirror. 
Yeah. Uh, it was super impressive that it uh, actually got that. But again, uh, you get four out of four. Um, it could be lucky. And I think a couple of things worked in my favor. Uh, the most important being that the idea had sound economic intuition mm-hmm. and theoretical foundation. So when that occurs, then even if there's not that much data, um, people will will kind of go along with it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that they really liked was the fact that it was so simple and mm-hmm. that it was competitive or beat these mm-hmm. econometric services that cost tens of thousands of dollars to subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And the cost of my forecast was at the time, um, 25 cents, which was the cost of the Wall Street Journal uh, back then. Right. <laughs> so that that was good. And um, that so works. They, they signed off. Um, and and then we kind of go to the out of sample period. So after you publish your dissertation, what, what happens? And usually uh, there's two things that happen. Um, in the good scenario, the effect that you document gets weaker. And in the bad scenario, the effect completely goes away. Right. But that's that's the way it works in science. Yeah. Uh, but I, in my situation, uh, the effect didn't go away. And the first real challenge I had was uh, October 1987. So I'm a junior professor and the stock market had crashed. And economists believed that there'd be a recession in 1988. So is widespread um, agreement that real GDP growth was going to be negative and we're going to go down. And I remember being at a conference and all this doom and gloom, and I was a, the most junior person. And I said, well, I've got this model, this yield curve model that tends to do a good job uh, historically in predicting real GDP growth. And I think real GDP growth is going to be 4.2% in 1988. And, and the reaction was almost laughter. Uh, what a joke. Like, who is, who is this kid? Yeah. Um, and the model is, is obviously a false yeah. model. And, and that was the first test. Um, and, and that growth was over 4% in 1988. 1988. There was no recession. Uh, and then um, the next four inversions of the yield curve uh, each were followed by a recession. So uh, for the data that I looked at, so in sample, four recessions, out of sample, four recessions, eight out of eight. And you might put an asterisk on the COVID recession. Yeah. Because obviously about that. the yield yeah. curve didn't forecast COVID. Right. But in real time, um, in 2019, um, when the yield curve inverted uh, at the end of June, uh, there was widespread expectation that we were going, going to go into a recession. Right. So our, well, our CFO survey at Duke University, 70% thought we're going into a recession. So yeah. uh, we will never know the counterfactual, but nevertheless, the, the, the foundation was there. And I will count that as one of the uh, eight out of eight. Got it. Hey, so there's a lot to unpack there. Let me first, though, begin with there's lots of ways of measuring the yield curve. 
you know, 10 year treasury yield versus the two year treasury yield, 10 year treasury yield versus the three month treasury bill, 10 year treasury yield. Usually it's the 10 year yield as your long term interest rate. And then there's a lot of short term rates. The other would be the federal funds rate, the, the rate the Federal Reserve controls. Which, which of the, those measures are uh, your favorite? Uh, or do you have a favorite? Or you, you can't pick. Well, which one do you look at most regularly? So I had to pick. Um, you had to back pick. Back in okay. 1986. So in 1986, I looked at the 10-year minus the three-month. And the logic was I want some yields that are some treasury bonds that are uh, liquid, uh, I chose the three month because I'm forecasting quarterly GDP. So it kind of makes sense to use a three month uh, rate. And I chose the 10 year because it was highly liquid, um, the most liquid and and still is. Uh, so so I looked at the 10 year minus the three month. And that one is the one I referred to as delivering no false signals. Now, others have looked uh, afterwards at let's say the 10 year minus the two year. Yeah. And all, all of these yields are correlated. So sure. if you look at that yield curve versus the 10 year minus three month, it's got high correlation. But the way I look at it is okay, well, my original idea was 10 year minus three month. Uh it's eight out of eight. And there's not really a good reason to switch it out. So if it was four out of eight, so it failed multiple times in forecasting, then that's a good reason to switch it out to something else. No, no false, I, I can't recall, no false positives with the 10-year three-month? That's correct. Okay. So, so it's, eight, it's, out, eight out of eight with okay. no uh, false uh, signal. So that's important so, okay. because um, you could be eight out of eight and have like 20 false signals. Right. This has got right. zero. And, and I didn't see like a good reason to, to swap it out. And, and there are like an infinite number of choices. So people say, well, 10 year minus a uh, two year, but it could be the eight and a half year uh, minus the one sure. and a half year. Yeah. You could data mine this to find something. AI. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> in this case, as I said, um, there's no false signal. If you look at the 10-year minus two-year, there is. Yeah. And and in 1998. Um, and I think Can you I, go with the original model until it fails. And then you re-examine it. One quick technical question on the three-month. Is that on an equivalent bond basis or or not? Yeah, you need to be careful here with the historical data. Yeah. Um, the yields are... Uh, Put it on a discount basis, and discount a basis. lot of people make this mistake yeah. that uh, if the the Treasury bill, is, the twelve month Treasury bill is trading at ninety dollars, um, the discount yield is ten percent, mm -hmm. but we know the true yield is greater than ten. Mm -hmm. So you need to make conversions. There's all sorts of conventions that you. Have so you to convert. You do it on an equivalent bond account. basis. You you look at ten year Treasury versus three month on an equivalent bond basis. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. When, there's a there's, uh, there's a so much and Chris, I'm going to let you in just a second. I know. Just, Chris just is, a quick technical. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, do you consider any type of threshold in terms of the extent of the inversion or the number of days? Is it if it's one basis point, it's inverted, yes. or is it? 
Yes. So uh, what I did in my dissertation, uh, I looked at the average over the quarter. Okay. Oh, it's so if you, you work for one day or one week, that just doesn't count. Again, the measurement of GDP is a quarter. It's not a day. Right. So, so you take this into account. And uh, so after a three-month period where you've got an inversion on average, then I declare that a code red uh, event in terms of my model. So 10-year yield, three months uh, on an equivalent bond basis for a three-month period, a quarter, that's yes. the signal recession. That That is the signal. And that is what is correlated with economic growth. So and my how, model uh, shows that that spread is a strong predictor of real economic growth. And How far ahead? How far ahead? What's the typical lead? So the lead varies and it varies between, let's say, six months and 18 months. Okay. So, okay. so let me tell you what the model does really well and what it doesn't do as well at. So obviously, given what we've already uh, talked about, it's really good at predicting recessions, uh, given it's eight out of eight. Hmm. It's also, and this is interesting, it's also very good at predicting the duration of recessions. So hmm. the length of the inversion is highly correlated uh, with the length of the recession. And uh, there's a third aspect that it doesn't do as well at, and that is the extent or the depth of the recession. So I've been criticized on social media. Oh, well, the Harvey model, it doesn't do very well uh, getting the depth of recessions. And I'm thinking, well, if I get a forecast of the recession event um, accurately, and then the duration, well, that's pretty good for a single variable. There's just yeah. one variable. So yeah, it doesn't do everything, but uh, at least historically, it's done really well. Got it. Let me ask a I want to get back to uh, you know why the yield curve is a good predictor, and then of course, obviously, I want to go to is it a good predictor today of recession dead ahead? But before I do that, a couple other uh, kind of nuts and bolts questions. One is why isn't the yield curve useful or seemingly useful overseas? I mean, if I go, if we go look at yield curves in other developed economies. Uh, you don't see that kind of relationship. But uh, what what is your thinking around that? Why is the U.S. yield curve such a good predictor, but others are not? Yeah, so my early research looked at other countries. And, and you're correct that the other countries are uh, don't have this strong relation like the U.S. has. And an obvious reason for this is uh, is manipulation. In, in the bond market. One country that was particularly interesting for me was my home country, Canada. So you think of Canada as, well, that it is highly tied to the US. So the business cycle in Canada uh, just mirrors what happens in the US. So the Canadian yield curve should have very little information. So I wrote this paper where I tried to forecast 
the difference between Canadian economic growth and U.S. economic growth. So the part that wasn't explained by what happens in the U.S. And it turned out that the difference between the Canadian and U.S. yield curves was very powerful in predicting the difference. Hmm. So, uh, so for a country close to home, uh, that indicator is quite important. But you're, if you go to other countries, for example, Japan, uh, there's no relation. And is it a surprise to you? No. Given yeah. you know, yeah. what happens in you know, the Japanese Bank government Japan bond is, market, yep. there's no surprise. Right. Which gets to another quick question. Do you think the Fed's quantitative easing, quantitative tightening is messing with the curve in terms of its signaling uh, because it's no longer, uh, you know, totally a market driven measure. It's now affected by policy. So yes. And, and I just want to emphasize something that the model, the economic model I use is so simple that there is no fed (laughs) It's really simple. And, and historically, the Fed has been very active in manipulating yields. Uh, Operation Twist is a good example, the original one. Uh, indeed, I think that uh, we talk about quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. In my opinion, uh, given the massive size of the bond market uh, today, that it was probably easier uh, 30, 40 years ago for the Fed to manipulate uh, the yield curve. Uh, The market is just so large now, it's so difficult uh, for the Fed uh, to deal with it. So yes, there is a a series of interventions that adds noise to this indicator. Uh, and, And there's very little I can do about that. The model is what it is, it's a simple model. And uh, it gives us some information which appears to be valuable. Uh, if I was in the business, uh, again, uh, if I was asked to develop a model for forecasting real GDP, just like I, I had the task as a, a student uh, intern, I would look well beyond uh, the yield curve. So the yield curve is important, but there's obvious other information that needs to be taken into account. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying, and just for the listener, QEQT, that's the Federal Reserve buying treasury securities, mortgage securities, and and then of course in QT, allowing the securities to run off the balance sheet. So they are big, they become, and that's since the financial crisis. So they become really large players, the Fed in the bond market. And that's, that is, as you're saying, having, has to have some impact. The question is how, how big an impact. I mean, they've got nine, you know, have nine trillion on the balance sheet now, you know, before the financial crisis, it might have been a half a billion. I don't. I mean, I don't know. Can't remember. No, it was four or five hundred billion dollars. Now it's nine trillion dollars. So it must have some effect. Here's the other thing: the bond market, U.S. bond market, has it feels like. Correct me if I'm wrong. Become more internationalized, globalized over time as well. It used to be pretty much a domestic. Uh, you know, investors would would buy treasury bonds and hold them. Now, if you look at the ownership, it's you know obviously all around the world. So, what's going on overseas is also having an impact on here. Do you think that's also messing with the recession signal in the yield curve? I think that's probably second order. Second order. Uh, so, I think 
Fed Treasury is first uh, first order. And I, I say it's second order because of the influence of the U.S. economy and the world economy. So, so the U.S. economy is the most important driver of world economic growth. Uh, yes, it's uh, the size of the economy is smaller compared to the rest of the world, um, compared to the past, but it's still a very important driver. So what um, other countries in terms of their buying of uh, U.S. treasuries is also correlated with expectations of what's going to happen in the U.S. Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, Chris, anything else you want to ask in, uh, with regard to the, uh, kind of the nuts and bolts of the yield curve before we move on to, you know, what's the intuition behind why it's such a good predictor? Anything else you wanted to bring up? Uh, no, I think. No. The, okay. Okay. Yeah, I think we Just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Okay. Let, let's turn to that question. And uh, there's a, a couple, three, and I'm sure there are more explanations for, you know, why, you know, what's going on here that I guess the most obvious is the a curve represents the collective wisdom of bond investors who are putting their money where their mouth is. So if a bond investor thinks, oh, this economy is going to go to hell and inflation is going to fall, I'm going to buy long-term bonds. Uh, and of course, short rates are kind of pinned to where they are because of monetary policy. The Fed's got its foot on the brakes. It can't come down or at least can't come down as much. And you get that inversion. Is, is that kind of your way of explaining why the curve is a good predictor or is it something else? Yeah, did you've hit it uh, exactly. It's a it's a basic hedging argument. So you see there's a problem, a simple way to think about it, there's a flight uh, to quality and that's the tenure. So uh, prices bid up, yields come down and that uh, flattens or potentially inverts uh, the yield curve. So really straightforward. Uh, straightforward. Inflation. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Here's another. Uh, this is now. This is a, a Zandi, I think, explanation, and I want to try it out on you. And I've tried it out on Chris, and uh, I think you're somewhat sympathetic to this. Uh, but let me play it. Play it for you for a second. So, uh, when you have a positively shaped yield curve, uh, and generally, you know, those are the good times. You know, and when it's really positively shaped, the boom times. Uh, financial intermediaries, banks, can make a boatload of money, right? Their net interest margin, the difference between their funding costs and their lending rates was very wide. They have a lot of incentive to go out and extend out a lot of credit. So you get a lot of credit flowing into the economy to businesses and to households. Uh, of course, in the boom times, the economy gets to full employment, inflationary pressures develop, the Fed steps on the brakes. At some point, it really steps hard. Curve goes flat, starts to invert. These intermediaries, the banks can't make money. Their net interest margin goes negative or down or flat. Their funding costs are greater than the lending rates, and they stop lending, which is really first problematic because credit is necessary to keep the economy moving. But it's really problematic after a period of very strong credit growth because you've got a lot of businesses and households coming back uh, saying, "Hey, I need to refinance this debt. I'm not. I can't pay you back." You know, I, no one ever thought I would pay you back at this point in time. We got to refinance, and the banks say, "Oh yeah, you can refinance, but now you got to pay me a much higher rate, or or the lending terms are much higher, much much more you know significant the underwriting standards, and so businesses can't afford that. The, the lending rate's too high, the terms are too onerous, and they say, "Oh, 
uh, I got to pull back on hiring. I got to pull back on investment. Uh, I can't expand. Thus, I go into recession. Uh, what do you think of that as an explanation for the intuition behind the curve? Does that make sense to you? It does make sense. Uh, indeed, <laughs> the first paper I presented at the University of Chicago had a mechanism similar uh, to that. Damn, I thought this was a Zandy idea. <laughs> this is, no oh, gosh. Oh, so I knew I, I, I could I never published it, so uh, you can have it. Um, but but it's, a really, uh, it's a really interesting idea that as we become really flat, that actually puts pressure on the banks. So when we're really uh, positively sloped, they're making a boatload of money, more um, likely to uh, make that loan to a corporation um, because they are making all of this money. And when it flattens, uh, it's less likely. And, uh, and, and this leads to companies making less investment, less employment, and that feeds into slower economic growth. So uh, I think that that explains some of the mechanism, but it doesn't really explain like the cause. So, so what is the reason that we're flattening? So given that we're flat, it makes sense that banks become more cautious in terms of their lending. But how do you get to that flattening? So, so the mechanism that you describe is a, is a credible mechanism that leads um, to perhaps extra predictive power uh, for the yield curve. Uh, it's not clear, though, that's the cause. Yeah, I, I, think it, I think of the credit cycle kind of driving the business cycle. Yeah, or you know, they're obviously it's, causality is running in in both directions here. But a, you know, key aspect of the of the business cycle in terms of the boom bust is credit boom bust, and so the credit flows are driven by the the shape of the curve and then an interest margin, and that dr helps amplify the ups and downs in the business cycle. That's kind of the the causal relationship that I have in mind. Yeah, and so I think you're right that. Um... We talk about causality, but everything really is connected. Everything yeah, is sure. endogenous yep. here. Right. And and I think you point out something that's really important, that I'm looking at the, the treasury yield curve, that if we were doing this job of forecasting real GDP, we would want to look at other information. And probably the number one place I would start is credit. Because if you look at credit spreads, they're also highly correlated with uh, a future economic growth. So there, there's another variable that you could look at to bolster the accuracy of your forecast. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So uh, collective wisdom of bond investors, maybe some uh, aspect of the credit cycle. Is there, are there, is there any other intuition behind it? Uh, not that there needs to be, but any other kind of causal link or relationship that could help explain why the curve is such a good predictor of recession? Uh, there, there are many different ways to go at this. And yeah. we've actually tackled uh, two of them. The, yeah. the basic hedging argument, yeah. I think, is uh, the most powerful one. Most powerful. Okay. Uh, and and just this idea that that uh, interest rates, they, um, they contain information about uh, real economic activity that's expected. So, so again, the foundation is, is very intuitive and it's, it's not really a surprise that this uh, works. Uh, Got it. 
let me also mention that uh, while I I documented uh, the yield curve predicting um, real GDP, uh, there was an earlier paper by somebody at the Fed in 1965, Ruben Kessel, and he had a long um, time series of the yield curve. And he noticed that there was a cyclical behavior. He didn't link it to forecasting uh, economic growth or anything like that, but he did notice that there were cycles. And, and that was an influential uh, paper for me, which obviously I cite in my uh, dissertation. Got it. Got it. Okay. So here we are today. And I just looked the, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, the uh, 10 year, three month, I think on an EBY basis, equivalent bond basis, inverted in October of last year. So here we go, November, December, January, February, we're four months in, that's three month moving averages, we are you know, inverted. So the signal that you use is say, saying recession, anytime between mid this year and kind of early, in, in, in 2024. Is that right? Is that what you're That's taking correct. away? So yeah, okay. we went the end of December, uh, so-called code red in terms of this uh, code indicator. Uh, so the indicator is forecasting a recession. Got it. Uh, okay. Let me ask you this. Is the yield curve, do you agree with that forecast? Do you think we're going into recession? No. Second half? You do not. I do not. So, okay. 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 <laughs> this is blowing my mind. This is blowing my mind. Uh, everything leading up to that said, yes, you were going to answer yes. Okay. All right. Cam, why? Why is this time different? By the way, those those deadly words, this time is different. <laughs> why is this time different? And by the way, Cam, I am like so with, uh, with on the same page with you, but go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, let me just first establish something really important. Yeah. Uh, every time is different. Okay. Okay. That's a good point. So good point. Yes. The yield curve model that I've got is a very simple model. And it is true that it's eight out of eight with no false signals. It is naive to think that this model will never produce a false signal. And I believe there's a number of reasons why it's producing a false signal uh, this time. Okay. So, and and I can go through. Yeah, uh, we, we should. Reasons. We definitely got to. We got to go through them. I'm like dying. This is like yeah. better than. Yeah. You know, this is like we got to sell tickets to this podcast. <laughs> this is really cool. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So, one thing that's unusual is the employment situation. Okay. And we know that employment is a lagging or maybe coincident uh, indicator. And that's mm -hmm. not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that the unemployment rate is low. It's always low before a recession. It always increases. But what's unusual is the excess demand where we've got uh, the ratio of job openings to unemployed is is very high. And what that means is when we slow down, and I believe that the yield curve is accurately forecasting slower growth, mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. to be clear. 
Mm-hmm. When we slow down, there's a buffer. And that means we're not going to see um, a spike. We will see an increase in unemployment, but not a spike in, in unemployment. And that's uh, one of the first uh, reasons uh, to kind of second guess uh, the forecast. Before you and, go on, let's just let, let me just just to, let me uh, uh, restate just so everyone can get their mind around it. <clears throat> You're saying th- this time is different because the labor market's different. Uh, you know, the labor market is uh, extraordinarily oversubscribed. There's just a, a, a 11 million unfilled positions out there. That's a record number. And uh, it, 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 it ref- also reflects kind of the um, uh, the idea that businesses know that their number one problem is retaining and holding on to workers. And in that kind of supercharged labor market, uh, hard to see the kind of layoffs you would need to see, the increase in unemployment you would need to see to go into recession. Is that roughly right? That is roughly right. Yeah. And it, it it's even beyond this. Even beyond this. Look at the at the if you dissect the type of unemployment that we've seen, it, it's very interesting because what makes the headline are all the tech layoffs. And mm. those are so different than the types of layoffs we had, for example, in the global financial crisis. Mm. So uh, you lose your job at Lehman Brothers. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to Bear Stearns? You're going to go to one of the banks that are um, basically looking for a handout? Uh, you're facing a very long period of unemployment, as many did uh, during the global financial crisis. These tech workers, uh, you work for an A-level firm, whether it be Facebook, uh, Twitter, Alphabet, um, and you're laid off. Those workers have a very low duration of uh, unemployment because they are highly sought at for um, just non-tech uh, corporations. You know, many companies would love to have one of those uh, ex-workers at these mm-hmm. A-level places uh, in the technology sector. So if you empirically look at the data, and this is interesting that it appears as if the duration is a little longer, but I think it's purely by choice mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. oh, well, I'll take some time off. I know with the snap of the fingers, I can get a job. Uh, and indeed, we're trying to get some of these workers uh, at our MBA program uh, at, at Fuqua, at Duke. Uh, they're yeah. highly desired. Moody's too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 So I think that, that that's another aspect. So the duration uh, is lowered, the, the structural makeup of uh, what we've seen in terms of uh, layoffs. That that's So all of this is, think of this as the, the first factor. What's the uh, second? The, the second, second factor is, is fascinating uh, to me. And this is all fascinating to me, Cam. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, this, is something, this is something totally unexpected. Uh, and, it, and it has to do with the yield curve. And before the global financial crisis, the yield curve was also strongly inverted for a long period of time. So the duration right. of the inversion was very, very long, just like the recession was long. And uh, I was screaming code red and, and nobody listened. I was and, with you. I was with you. 
I yeah. was with well, you. Okay, yeah. Well, okay. Maybe I wasn't screaming Nobody's as loud too as you strong. Were. Yeah. <laughs> so it definitely the case the Fed didn't listen. Yeah. Uh, and they were so late uh, to the game. And so for think about like a CEO or a CFO, uh, you know, during the global financial crisis, they had to make significant layoffs. Their firm could be in distress and they could credibly say, we were blindsided by this. We had no idea this was going to happen. And my my peers uh, within the industry, they were also blindsided. So uh, it was a surprise. So today, it's a different story. So after the global financial crisis recession, people started to see, um, to predict the power of the yield curve. It got a lot of media attention. Uh, This is not really my area of research anymore, but I get asked about the yield curve all the time. And I think given the publicity Hmm. that the yield curve has got, that it's harder for a CEO to say, if a recession occurred, well, we were completely surprised. Hmm. It's hard for the CEO to make a major capital investment and borrow uh, to finance that in the face of an inverted yield curve. You think mm-hmm. about it, that making an investment uh, or betting the firm in a situation with an inverted yield curve where you've got a record of eight out of eight and no false signals, you need to think twice about mm-hmm. that. Or major hiring, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to wait. And and this is this is related to this idea of self-fulfilling a prophecy. Mm-hmm. So you get the inversion, uh, people see it and say, oh, well, that's bad news. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm not going to pull the trigger on this investment project. I'm not going to hire uh, like 100 new uh, employees. I'm going to wait and see. And that feeds in to the slower economic growth. Okay, so that's the self-fulfilling prophecy, and it actually makes the yield curve causal. So uh, a negatively sloped uh, yield curve could actually cause slower economic growth, given that it's now a popular uh, indicator. So what is this number two factor? Well, the yield curve has caused companies to be cautious and to exercise risk management. And to take actions now that (laughs) hopefully will protect them in the future for the extreme downside. So it's better to take actions now to slow economic growth and to reduce the probability that you need to take drastic actions in the depth of a serious recession. So that it is. So this is. Again, fascinating to me that there's a causal a link here. Uh, the predictive power is still there, um, but this risk management reduces the probability of a hard landing. Interest that is fascinating. So you're saying, look, the fact that everyone is focused on this as an indicator and is predicting recession means that they become more cautious. That will allow the economy to kind of cool off and not experience the the boom and bust that it typically does because it it cooled off in anticipation of all of this. It's 
that 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 is fascinating. Yeah, that the self fulfilling aspect of it is actually going to reduce the odds that the economy actually goes into recession because people are responding earlier than they typically would. Or, or at least a hard recession. Hard so recession. It could be like right. a soft one, like yeah. 2001, yeah. Uh, which is not really a big deal. You might yeah. not even have an, like a year over year that's- uh, it might, That wouldn't even have been a recession, I don't think, without 9-11, right? Probably. It might not yeah. have been. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, interesting. Okay. that's that's and, and now I'm cognizant a little bit of time, so I want to make sure I get through all the reasons. Is there a reason number three? So there are multiple reasons. Um, oh, but, oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. Let's just do like one more reason. Okay. Uh, okay. So one of, if you look at the global financial crisis uh, recession, housing was a big part of it. Yep. And if you look at equity to debt in the housing market, it looks sharply different than uh, before the global financial crisis where there's much more uh, equity. So even if housing housing is down, yep. um, but even if it goes down further, that's not going to trigger uh, a big problem. Nor and um, reason number four, um, our financial uh, system is sound, yep. uh, in my opinion, right now. So in the global financial crisis, that was actually the cause of the problem. And given that it's much more uh, prudent today. I think it's less likely that that accelerates uh, any issues. So the economy is on sounder, sounder uh, uh, fundamental ground than it is typically before recession. Therefore, no recession. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you, Chris, does this all sound familiar to you? I'm just asking, Chris. This is <laughs> so Chris like is, Chris is a, like a, a true believer in your yield curve and saying we're, we're you know he's relying very heavily on that as a predictor of future recession. Uh, uh, anything to say? Whether, I'm turning back to you, Chris. I, anything yeah. you'd like to say or push back on? Oh gosh. Uh, so I, I'm I'm fully on board with the idea that the next recession would be mild, right? For the reasons you you outlined here. And actually, my question to you was around the self fulfilling prophecy aspect, and and I can see that uh, uh, certainly firms are acting much more conservatively today in anticipation. I think it's a very careful calibration. Though, right? Because they're they're pulling back on that investment. Um, if they pull back too far, or if households pull back too far, then you will have the recession, right? So it's it's got a little bit of a dance there. But I do agree that you know there's no there's no um, or there's very little evidence of excess or that would lead to a very uh, significant uh, recession. So I still I still use the uh, yield curve certainly as a signal. I I find it difficult to to ignore uh, completely, but it, combined with some other factors. I, I still see that there is uh, significant risk, and we're right on that edge, as as you put it. That, yeah, households are in pretty good shape; they have a lot of equity, but you know there are some cracks in the in, in uh, consumer credit, housing, um, uh, build, home building is is weak, right? So there are some some areas where a little bit of a shock could certainly tip us into recession, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I don't think we're that far apart here. So I, I totally agree. There's risk, uh, and and I believe that growth will slow. So yeah. I think the yield curve is accurately uh, forecasting that. Uh, I just think the probability of a hard landing is is pretty low uh, given the the economic scenario right now. Uh, that said, the big wild card, in my opinion, is what the Fed is going to do. 
Mm-hmm. And the Fed could make the model uh, uh, nine out of nine. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, so do you think the yeah. Fed um, is responding to the yield curve as well? No. So no. I think the Fed uh, is using this very blunt instrument, the Fed funds rate. And this blunt instrument, given what they're doing, thinking that just raising the rate is going to erase uh, inflation, uh, could drive us into a hard landing. Hmm. And uh, we all know that the Fed was very late uh, to the game, where we had essentially zero uh, interest rates for an extended period of time that didn't make any sense, where you've got strong economic growth, you've got low unemployment, you've got record stock market, and the rates are um, very low or zero, uh, even though inflation was increasing, they're late to the game. And I believe that uh, they will be late again, they will overshoot. And there's evidence that they're already um, doing this, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that one of the major problems here you mentioned housing. That that is the problem. That it is fairly intuitive that housing inflation takes a while to make it into the CPI. Yes. If you think about okay, rents let's say go up by ten percent. Well, if you've got a lease for the next eleven months, you don't feel that right. until you have to renew in eleven months. So that's exactly what we had. If you look uh, early on, you see the rents going up, the housing prices going up, and it takes a while to work its way through uh, the CPI and then the Fed response. It's the same thing now that the rental component, the shelter component is 40% of the PCE uh, deflator, 33% of the CPI. Um, and and. You can look at the data. You can see the rents coming down. You see the housing prices coming down. You see uh, new construction going down, permits going down. All of this is consistent with this really important component coming down over the next six months. Yet the Fed is perhaps going to do 50 basis points next time, and that could be enough to push us uh, into the recession. You know, it's very interesting when. I asked you for the reasons why the yield curve is uh, falsely predicting recession. I, I think that, of, broadly speaking, there's two sets of reasons. One are fundamental reasons, you know, the labor market, the housing market, uh, that uh, the things that you mentioned. The other are uh, what I would consider to be more uh, technical measurement re- issues. I mentioned the QE to QT. We talked about. Um, uh, you know, global uh, investors, you know, in- increasingly in the marketplace. The, th- the third I want to throw out there is that the Fed over time through uh, business cycles have become uh, increasingly uh, uh, clearer with regard to the path of future monetary policy, that their for- so-called forward guidance is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. And now they're like crystal clear, as crystal clear as you ca- can can be. And uh, that is also influencing the shape of the curve in the future, more so than it has in the past. And it's interesting, you went to the fundamental reasons. You didn't go to kind of the technical reasons. Uh, or do you just, is it that you don't think those technical reasons are, as you said, they're just second order kind of reasons? They're not 
by themselves sufficient to make the curve less predictive of, of future recessions? Does that make sense? So what I, I just I, said? I, yeah, I think I, I did use the word uh, second order and I also use the word noise. Noise. <laughs> because a lot of yeah. stuff happens yeah. that, again, this is a very simple indicator and other stuff yeah. will happen. And some of it may be first order, some of it second order. Uh, and okay. it has the ability to mess up the predictive uh, power. Yeah, interesting. Well, Cam, if we go into recession, how embarrassing would that be for you? <laughs> so yeah, just... it, no, it's, it's adds you win, tells you little. <laughs> yeah, so I, I thought about this a, a little bit, and yeah, uh, again, uh, this is this is not. Of course, that I was a tongue in cheek right. question. I'm, I you know you know I got I, it. I didn't, yeah, <laughs> it's just tongue in cheek. Yeah. So I'm talking I'm talking to you uh, about the yield curve's predictive power. Uh, but this research is is something that I did many, many years ago, and I've moved on to a different area. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I think we need to look at this scientifically. Yep. So this is a model that I proposed, and the model's done very well in terms of uh, predictions and lack of false signals. And I, my job is is not to just support the model. Uh, yes, it's my model, um, but I'm a scientist, and any model is going to be eventually wrong. It has to be. It is yep. a simplification of reality, yep, and that point. simplification is going to fail at some point. So I'm not going to be embarrassed. So well, if actually, it works or it doesn't work, there's no embarrassment. If you're this right, is, this is science. If you're right, you you will become the oracle. You will become the oracle. You you are now the oracle of the yield curve. When do I listen to it and when don't I listen to it? Yeah, yield curve uh, whisperer. <laughs> You'll be the yield curve whisperer. Uh, 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 that'll be a very good spot to be in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. indeed. I I did a podcast uh, that they called exactly that. The yield curve, curve whisperer. whisperer. Oh, yeah. actually, maybe that'd be a good one for the. the can't, I maybe we can't steal that, but that's a good one. Well, Cam, I, you know, we took the the hour, and I really appreciate it. It was a fantastic conversation, and really uh, put things into clear uh, relief. So, uh, thank you for that. And um, Chris, any parting words that you want to say? Like, I'm, you know, uh, well, stay tuned. Parting words. How about stay tuned? <laughs> stay tuned. Stay tuned. Those are good parting words. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Cam, thank you so much, and uh, please. Uh, uh, We'll we'll definitely have you back, uh, you know, down the road here uh, to see how this thing all after this thing all plays out. So thanks again, appreciate well, it. Well, thank you for inviting me, uh, and indeed, uh, I recommend this podcast to my students. So oh, uh, keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And you heard that, dear listener. Uh, we've got a fan. Uh, hopefully, your fans as well. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care now. <laughs>